Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AI for Students podcast. I'm Evan Myers, a senior at Fermi University and a member of the AEI Executive Council program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation I moderated with AEI's Michael Brendan Doughty and Thomas Charlton Williams on race, identity, belonging, and fatherhood. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AEI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on campus. If you want to get involved or learn more about AI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Campus Exchange and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. With that, here's my conversation with Michael Brendan Doughty and Thomas Shireton Williams. My name is Dr. Brent Nelson. I'm in the Politics and International Affairs Department here at Furman, and am very happy to be hosting today's webinar with two extraordinary guests. This particular event is part one of a series mm-hmm. of spring CLPs called Who We Are, Race and Politics in a Time of Polarization. The series is sponsored by Furman's AEI Executive Council. We are excited that you are here for this important discussion. And now I'm going to turn things over to our moderator this evening, Evan Myers. Evan is a senior here at Furman. He is president of Furman's AEI Executive Council. He is a Furman Fellow, co-host of the Zoom Uni podcast, and he's also editor-in-chief emeritus of the Paladin newspaper. So, Evan, take it away. Thank you very much, Brent. Dr. Nelson. That's a very kind introduction. We're really pleased. AI Executive Council at Furman is really pleased to have two fantastic guests with us today, both really accomplished in their own right. And I'll go ahead and introduce them now. Michael Brendan Dougherty is a senior writer at National Affairs and recently published his first book, a memoir called My Father Left Me Ireland and An American Son's Search for Home. And Thomas Shatterton Williams writes at several outlets, Harper's, New York Times Magazine. And he is also both our fellows, AI visiting fellows, and he has published two memoirs. The most recent one is titled uh, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. And we're really pleased to have them today for a conversation about identity and belonging. I will go ahead and dive in. First, you know, as I just mentioned, both of you have written really personal memoirs. I've had the chance to read them both. I'd recommend them. But I wanted to ask why you guys chose this particular form of for your work. And also, broadly speaking, how you use the memoir to approach the question of, of your own identity and identity more broadly. And Michael, we can start with you. Your book is called My Father Left Me Ireland, An American Son Search for Home. And the sort of key words that pop out in the title and you know come throughout the book are father, son, Ireland, America, and home. How do those words help you understand your own identity? Take it away. Well, I mean, the book began with my wife becoming pregnant for the first time some years ago. and naturally that kind of brings up thoughts about your own early childhood experiences and and what you want to give to your children and who you are and who they who they will be in the world my mother had died before my first child was born and my father had not been a part of my life he had left my mother before i was born and so i was suddenly confronted with you know who am i and i had no 
parents to turn to very easily. The book kind of goes through how I started turning towards the the fragments of Irish heritage that my mother sprinkled throughout my childhood. Some of the language, Irish language, songs, stories, you know, just socializing with Irish emigres in Queens in the 1980s, and how that kind of informed a reconciliation with my father in adulthood. And it was, I mean, it literally began with a question like, what songs do I sing to my children? And, you know, why should those be the songs that I just liked when I was a teenager on pop radio? What, what does that actually give to them? And what I was looking for and ultimately found was in the, the folk traditions, folk songs, the rebel ballads that my, my mother had put into my early childhood, I was finding a repository of values and strength that would serve me in this new role of life and fatherhood. And that were in effect very countercultural to how I was raised. You know, they were demanding, they preached virtues that were often held to be vices in the kind of American culture I was raised in. And this was all also happening at a time when Ireland itself was going through its own kind of head case Reexamination of its legacy of celebrating some centennials of very important historical events. So yeah, it was this search for grounding, and it was an attempt to search beyond the tools that American education gave me, which which mostly you know abandoned me to this this tyranny of having to choose your identity almost entirely for yourself and choosing your values for yourself which I felt was a way of kind of marooning me and, and many people in my generation and leaving us ill-equipped for, for being adults in the real world. Thomas, you also have a transatlantic story to tell in a way, maybe in reverse, perhaps. And you, you actually written two memoirs. The first was titled Losing My Cool, Love, Literature, and a Black Man's Escape from the Crowd. And your more recent one was titled Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. What changed between these two books? I don't know a ton of people who've written two memoirs. You know, in particular, I wanted to ask, in the title of the first book, you identify yourself as a black man, whereas in the title of the second, you offer us a self-portrait in black and white. Why the change? And then also, maybe could you mention the transatlantic story so people have a, a sense of what I'm talking about? Sure. Well, yeah. First, thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be with you all tonight. And the change comes out of the move overseas in some way, so it's all linked up. Yeah, I didn't set out to write two memoirs before the age of 40. I, I haven't lived such a spectacular life that I felt it had to be told serially. But I often find that when I'm trying to make certain arguments or I'm trying to make points, intellectual ideas more vivid, I find that speaking through personal experience can be helpful. And so I oftentimes start with an argument, but then aspects of my own observations and, and memories and reading and relationships kind of come into the writing. And I find it effective. I find when I'm trying to understand a universal, it oftentimes helps to get very narrowly particular and to really see aspects of a life to, to, to make a point. So, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And my mother's a white evangelical Christian from Southern California. My father is a black man from segregated Texas. He's old enough to be my grandfather. So he came up in the 1940s and 50s, well before civil rights. And I was really raised, my brother and I were raised with the idea that a drop of black blood makes a person black. 
We had a mixed family, but we defined our family as Black. Couldn't mark more than one race on the census until the year 2000, till the time that I was already well into college. So, you know, it wasn't really so complicated for me. I didn't, I, I had a white mom and a Black dad, but I didn't really think too hard about the kind of paradoxes that made for me define myself as Black and felt that racial authenticity was something that was kind of measured in one's behavior and in one's performance of an identity. So I, I, my first book is really about performing a Black masculinity that was glorified and sold through a kind of commercial hip-hop culture that many of my friends and I bought into and in some ways allowed to, to sabotage us a bit. You know, it, it sold us a, a narrow version of, of an identity that I think that was actually very foreign to, to Black men and women like from my father's generation. But it wasn't until I met my wife, who's French and who's white and blonde-haired and blue-eyed blue like my mother is, that I began to realize that, you know, this idea of a drop of Black blood making a person Black because race is binary is an either-or proposition. It wasn't until we were married and we were thinking about having children that I realized that my children might very well challenge my conception of of that binary. And sure enough, when my daughter was born in 2013, we were living in Paris. It was living with her, taking her home and having a child that, that most of the world who, when they met her, would perceive her as white, but I knew was, you know, a quarter descended from Africa. It, it, was, it was living with her that really thrust the fiction of race into my consciousness in a way that it hadn't in my own life living with my parents. And it wasn't that I believed that I had a white daughter it was that it's very difficult to believe that you are a different race than your child. And so these kind of these walls, they just fell down, they crumbled. I no longer believed in them. And so the second book is really, it's, the difference between the two books is that in the first book, I believe that race is real. And by the second book, I have lost that belief, but I haven't just lost it for myself. I begin to be convinced that race doesn't actually work for any of us. And in fact, it causes many of the problems we we're saddled with right now. So, so the second book becomes a kind of movement away from things I took for granted in the first. Thank you both. You know, you guys have obviously thought about identity a lot. Each of you, you've written personal memoirs like we just talked about. But I want us to talk about some of the common ways that young Americans like me and like my fellow college students who are on this webinar are encouraged to think about our own identities, something that has become you know, immensely powerful and popular in my lifetime, and I think is part of our political vocabulary today, is identity politics. I wanted to ask broadly, you know, why that has become so popular, whether you guys think it's useful or harmful to link the words identity and politics together in this way, and also whether identity politics does, in fact, help us understand ourselves. And, and finally, to the proposition, aren't all politics essentially identity politics? Thomas, you've been both hailed and criticized for rejecting racial categories, like you just mentioned in your latest book. Can you explain your position in comparison to other approaches to identity, such as the sort of more identitarian politics approach and the anti-racist approach, potentially, that Ibram Kendi presents in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist? Sure. You know, identity politics, like many things, it has a fairly long history. And the way it started out is not necessarily the way we interact with it today. And some, some things that start out as reasonably good ideas kind of can get taken to extremes or become problematic in ways that were not there in the present. So 1977, the Combahee River Collective is a group of 
black feminists and they had an insight that was essentially where our experience is black and it's also as women and it's not exactly the same as black men and it's not exactly the same as white women and there's a kind of there's a point at which these things are specific to us and and that grounds our experience as political beings in this society in ways that people outside of that kind of intersection can't fully appreciate sometimes. I think that's a fundamentally accurate insight into the human condition. There are aspects of our lives. We all have different aspects of our identities that that make us particular and give us particular needs. This leads to intersectionality. The problem becomes, you know, in, in, in a hyperpolarized time like we live in now, the problem becomes when that fundamental insight that there are special circumstances I partake in that not everybody partakes in, when it becomes my identity is unbridgeable. You cannot understand me by sharing values, by sharing principles, by participating in a kind of universal humanity that I am walled off from you. And that's where I think it starts to get a bit toxic, especially when, you know, we're in a situation now where many, many different identities are kind of walled off from each other. And then white identity is, again, walled into its own zone as something kind of akin to original sin. It's a kind of toxic cycle of alienation that doesn't lead to good outcomes. Someone like Ibram Kendi, who you brought up, you know, he would say that we have to be anti-racist and we past discrimination has to lead to present discrimination, which has to lead to future discrimination ad infinitum. I think that we have to recognize that there's racism that operates in society and that we should be anti-racist, but that that's not enough. Where I would differ from him, one of the places I would differ from him is that I would say that we'll never transcend racism so long as we continue to believe in and reproduce the categories that are produced by racism. So categories that come out of slavery, black and white, that are fundamentally based on hierarchies of oppression. I think we have to we have to hold two views at once. One is to to combat racism in the present, and the other is to see a future in which we are all able to engage on equal terms and these superficial differences are attenuated. Anti-racism is not enough. I don't think I've heard that one before. All right, Michael, you recently wrote an article claiming that advocates of identity politics, so what the stuff that we're talking about, are looking for authentic selfhood in all the wrong places. I wanted to ask what you mean by that. Your book, in many ways, is kind of a search for authentic selfhood. I wanted to ask, you know, what in your mind is authentic selfhood? Why are the people that are looking to identity politics to find that? Why are they looking there? And what are the right places to look for authentic selfhood in in, in your view? Well, I mean, this is a huge and deep question, right? I mean, I think that I would attribute the triumph of identity politics to a modern, maybe a defect in our modern understanding of selfhood. I mean, maybe people don't experience it as a defect, but I think we all experience ourselves are a kind of bundle of psychological expressions and needs seeking recognition. Francis Fukuyama has a recent book called Identity, and he talks about the way that liberal societies are kind of completely ill-equipped to justify themselves to a person seeking this kind of recognition. And in fact, liberal orders also just have trouble living up to their own promises, right? There is still injustice. There is still 
this sense of not measuring up to what society should be and this sense that is almost universal to every human of being unrecognized. Now, I think that this is a, a kind of centuries-long development in our, our concept of how we think of what a, a human self is, what our identity is and needs. And I am not, I do not think identity politics solves the problem on a personal level, though it does, in a sense, scratch the itch. And I think that's also why it's, in a sense, so contagious and why something like the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd's death last year, you know, went from American cities where we have like a, a very well-established sense of what America's racial history and, and, and problems and wounds are, you know, it jumped immediately to places like Dublin or London or Paris or, you know, all over the world where people of different races have gathered. It felt universal and intuitive to people. You know, in my own personal search for self, I think this is something people will struggle with for their lives. And if, if we are, if we don't move beyond the psychological self, I think we become imprisoned in it. In a sense, without an authoritative society to kind of define, without an authority in a society that we grant the, the authority to kind of define us, we will be a subject trying to know ourselves subjectively. In a sense, the authenticity will disappear along an ever-receding horizon. Now, personally, I personally feel that I have something like the traditional Christian liturgy provides a kind of objective other experience that may help reconcile like an individual to their self. And in my own book, I mean, this is a search for self, if it can be that, is left behind for a search for my father and a search for something to give to my daughter, like an actual patrimony in our real biological and historical relationships to each other. And that moving beyond whether I feel Irish or I feel American, which is kind of a game, right? Because of course, you can feel both at the same time. I mean, I have an American accent. And when I stand next to my father and we talk about sports, we look like foreigners to each other. And yet, when I stand next to him, even if he is, if I haven't seen him for a decade, as has happened in our lives at certain junctures, you know, every cell of my body is kind of crying out for his fatherly embrace. The kind of primordial relationship was still there. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's not something that can be answered lightly, right? An authentic self. But the question is, how do you conceive of the self and its needs? And if the self is just a psychological phenomenon, I think it will be impossible to find authenticity. Authenticity has to, in a sense, move, move beyond the self, eventually beyond politics into history, into family, possibly theology, if you're so inclined. Thomas, I actually want to want to turn to you and, and and kind of get your take on on some of the observations that Mike was making. In particular, you were in Paris when the Black Lives Matters protests reached Europe. I want to kind of assess what you think of if that's sort of an affect of liberal society that that were we really deeply seek this sort of recognition or this this sort of some sort of sense of belonging, and that people found that in that protest. And people find that in their racial categories. And then since you reject racial categories, and, and to the best of my knowledge, I'm not sure if you're religious, where do you put that sense of belonging? Where do you find that? And, and how do you answer 
that question that Michael is asking of something outside of yourself that helps you, you know, kind of give you a sense of groundedness. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was really interesting to be in Europe over the past summer when those protests were, you know, there were tens of thousands of people in Paris, in Amsterdam, in London. I mean, as far away as, as parts of Asia, as Korea and Japan, manifesting for Black Lives Matter. In France, it was particularly interesting because that larger movement was something that they grafted local issues onto. And one death in particular where a guy of African descent was killed after getting into a scuffle with, with gendarmes, not quite police, a bit more militaristic than police. And that happened a few years ago, and it never quite caught on. But once, once the George Floyd protests happened, then his sister began calling for protests in his name, but they were saying Black Lives Matter in English, and it, it, it lit something in the, in the collective imagination. You know, I have a lot of thoughts about what that has to do with, because in French society, my ideas are a lot less controversial. The French government does not officially recognize racial categories. They don't keep racial statistics. They believe that ethnic identities should be private and that publicly everybody is French citizens. There's this idea of universalism. Now, in practice, of course, there's still racism in French society. So we can have a conversation about whether that, in fact, makes the society work better or not. But, but they don't recognize identities in the same way. And there's a kind of growing movement among the younger generation to bring in more of an American style identity politics and multiculturalism to a society that has never had that. And so I think that part of this can't really be discussed. Why are these things happening now? It can't completely be discussed without talking about the technological component. The social media, in large measure, the internet, these things are not just dominated by English, they're dominated by American English and American kind of social justice language. That's the lingua franca of, of Twitter and Facebook and things like this for, for millennials and Zoomers. So I think that that kind of conditions the response to these events as well. There's a kind of Americanization, an internationalization of wokeness, which I think is really a complicated subject, actually. And it has to do with how American soft power is still very much alive and well in the world, even in the era of Donald Trump. I think in some ways, part of what you're seeing in other parts of the world, it is social justice movements that resonate with issues they have, but it is also something like eating Big Macs and wearing Levi's. They're participating in American culture, actually, and it doesn't always fit completely in their own situations. So that's part of what you asked me. The other part is what kind of authority would I look to so as not to just be a kind of uh, atomized uh, individual floating? I'm not sure. I, I mean, nationality, I, I feel American, but I've been in, in Europe for 10 years. And when I go back to America, I feel quite European. I'm from a family that, you know, my parents got married only three years after that was even legal nationwide for, for blacks and whites to marry. They both left their families to create a new family and moved across the country. I was raised without a lot of extended family and I'm not religious. So I think that I have a tolerance for a kind of individualism that I wouldn't expect everybody to necessarily embrace. I try to, I try to make my arguments about unlearning race in a way that also recognizes that other people do need community. And some people actually, some of the pushback I got to my book was that people would recognize that race may not be real, but that they actually, they, they, they want to be part of some type of tribe. 
and race is as good a tribalism as any other to, to, to build community. And I guess I have to contend with that. Not everybody's going to want to, to unlearn these connections. I think that's right. And I think another criticism of your book that I've heard, and I think it's along similar lines, is that essentially it's, it's I think some people have essentially called it colorblind and therefore incapable of confronting racism, similar to what you mentioned earlier about Kendi saying that, you know, discrimination in the past must be you know, met with discrimination in the present. If you reject racial categories altogether, how can you said you had to hold those two things in your head at once. But I'm wondering if that's almost an impossible juggling act. Do you think it's possible to address racial justice issues or, or issues of race while rejecting racial categories? How do we how do we actually go about that? Yeah, absolutely. I do think I don't think it's just possible. I think it's necessary. What happened in America to people called black or to people called Native American or whatever, but if we specifically focus on black people, it didn't happen to black people. It happened to a specific group of people who were brought to America and enslaved and deemed black. We have plenty of people that came to America more recently that happened to have melanin in their skin, but didn't undergo these experiences at all. So what I think happened in America, what we have to do on the level of anti-racism, I think that we would probably have to have some serious conversations about reparations, not based on blood or skin or genes, but based on having belonged to a community that, you know, as recently as in my father's adulthood, was in many instances blocked from accessing home ownership or taking advantage of GI bills, like very practical matters that can be tabulated and addressed. You know, that's a step in an anti-racist direction, I think, because I, I believe that as you kind of equalize material inequality, that a lot of the superficial racism will also mend itself. We see that there are, you know, vast discrepancies and outcomes between different kinds of people deemed black in American society now. Immigrants from Nigeria outperform whites on balance in terms of attaining graduate degrees. There's lots of things that don't track with our kind of, you know, overly simplified abstract color categories that we box people into. Michael, I want to I turn that one over to you. In, in many ways, your book is a critique of materialism or it's, it's anti-materialist and you're looking for something, I think, spiritual, you might say. And I think there's lots of people and the conservative movement that feel similarly that that actually do embrace the idea that we we need some sort of spiritual, I guess, something outside of ourselves to belong to, some group to belong to. I think your book takes that really seriously. I mean, you're you're looking for a homeland in it in, in many ways. And at the same time, conservatives have, I think, been criticized for being kind of silent about race in America and about racial justice. And a big question that I've been asking that I, I haven't heard, I, I think, a satisfactory answer from conservatives is what would define a sort of conservative approach to racial reconciliation and justice? And I, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I do. You're right that conservatives don't talk about race very often. And part of the reason for that is just sheer sweating embarrassment. There are not the percentage of conservatives who are black is, or at least, of Blacks who are in the conservative movement and its institutions is very low. So conservatives often feel unconnected to this conversation. Conservatism grew up, I mean, the, the modern American conservative movement grew up in the Midwest and in the American Southwest and only later incorporated the South as part of its electoral coalition. And with it, it, it inherited some uncomfortable baggage. It also has baggage in that the conservative movement defends 
America's founding institutions and documents, which are bound up with the practice of American slavery. You know, one thing I have suggestions for conservatives in starting black attitudes in America have this way of a kind of love hate relationship with America, right? There are times when the black intellectual climate looks beyond America, right? It sees America as a place of oppression and defined by that oppression. And so you get things like Pan-African movements, you know, turns toward third world, third worldist Marxism. But at other times, Black Americans seem to recognize, in a sense, that they are the most American Americans, right? That in, in effect, my Irish ancestors who emigrated to America at the end of the Civil War came hundreds of years later than enslaved Africans. They came with their religion, with their national identity, often with their families, and some of them with their language. Blacks, all of that was stripped from them. And so they are unique in America in that they are shaped almost entirely by America's history and these great political movements towards abolition, the end of Jim Crow. And in, in fact, it also, I think, explains in some, some ways why I wonder if that experience, in a sense, is erased by this larger category, which is now almost the legal category, person of color, which incorporates immigrants from Brahmin caste, subcontinent, Nigerian businessmen, you know, the sons of Bracero laborers in the Southwest. I think in some ways that's a white and person of color are deracinating identities that are written very deeply into our civil rights laws and codes now. Looking at how that warps our experience and reshapes it is maybe the first thing conservatives should do. And of course, obviously, the other thing conservatives should do is show up among Black audiences. I mean, one of the reasons that Blacks are alienated from conservatism in the United States is the racial segregation of evangelical churches. That's less of a problem in my own Catholic church. My parish looks like a demographic reflection pretty much of its city in Norwalk, Connecticut, but it's not true of a huge section of the evangelical church in America. So I think addressing that, that level of social segregation, and then showing up, I mean, there is this huge strain of black conservatism, but it is, it has been cordoned off from the larger American conservative movement. I'm hoping that'll, that'll end soon, but it's up to the conservative movement to open the door. And then it's up to black conservatives or any black American to walk through it. I pray it happens soon. Thomas, I want to I give you the chance to respond to a specific part of that. In particular, Michael mentioned there's these kind of two strains of Black intellectual thought in the United States, and I think both are very understandable. One is that, as he mentioned, that America is a suppressive place and it's going kind of beyond or outside America. He mentioned sort of Pan-African movement, for example. The other is this idea that, as Michael said, Black people are the most American, that They've been here longer than Michael's Irish family. And that not only that, but this whole search that Michael goes on in his book for reclaiming his homeland is one that is, you know, unfortunately and tragically impossible for a lot of, of African Americans. I wanted to ask you, you know, where do you come down on that? Do you feel like you're in one strain of the thought, one strain of thought or the other? And why? Yeah, that's thank you for asking. That's a great question that I feel very close to 
the tradition that I, that really resonates with me is the Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, Stanley Crouch, James Baldwin would be in here too. Kind of tradition that says I am quintessentially American. I think that it's important to, and you really see this when you do step outside of America and live in Europe, for example, it's important to recognize the degree to which America is a fundamentally mongrel nation. Whites in America are mixed up. They're not, they're not the same as the people that left Europe. They've mixed in many ways. Many whites have enough African DNA, millions of whites have enough African DNA in their family trees to have been enslaved in former slave states. And the, the, the typical Black American descended from the American South is 80% West African descended and 20% usually white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and has been there longer than the majority of white people in the country now. The idea that America is, Americans are a new people that are comprised fundamentally of Europeans, Africans, and Native Americans. That's the tradition I come from. There is no other place to go home to. Something happened in that new world over 400 years that fundamentally changed us from the old world. James Baldwin speaks very eloquently about discovering he was American when he arrived in Paris and realizing that he and the GI, the white GI from Texas belonged to each other and had things in common with one another in ways that neither of them had with the Africans or the Europeans that were in France. So that's fundamentally the tradition that I come from. And I think that America will really achieve its democratic promise once it is able to fully understand itself as a, as a, as a nation that's inextricably linked to these ancestries, but new in the new continent. And I wanted to say one thing to build on what Michael was saying, the numbers say that only 25% of Black Democrats identify as liberal. 40% of Black Democrats describe themselves as moderate, and another quarter identify as straight-up conservative. It's the history of what specifically has been happening in the Republican Party that they're not capturing a great many people that probably are out of sync with much of the super progressive aspects of the Democratic Party now. White progressives are far to the left of, of, of Blacks and Latinos. So, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot to be done there with new potential new coalitions. I mean, Donald Trump increased his turnout with every group except for white males by some exit poll numbers. So conservatives probably have to ask them, and not conservatives in terms of sensibility, but movement conservatives and people within the GOP, if they want to build that coalition, probably have to ask themselves why it is that people that identify as conservative are still so not at home in their movement. I do want to point out, Thomas, that you, earlier you said you, you kind of stuck on the individualist thing, and now you sound almost like somewhat American nationalist in a way. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's where you find your home in that tradition. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I certainly do think that you can't, I don't think you can abolish national identity. I, I think it's easier to, to see the artificiality of, of race and possibly even gender, but to realize that we can't be 8 billion global citizens that have no borders anywhere. So I think a strong national identity in a healthy way, that should never be something that's considered shameful, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And Michael, I wanted to ask you, you have a uh, strong national identity, I think, in two nations. How do we go about finding home and in this individualized framework of liberalism without losing the benefits of liberalism? I mean, it's a huge question. I mean, I, you know, Ireland, of course, has a really strong modern 
temperament that is suspicious of nationalism because of Irish nationalism extracted a price in blood in Ireland and beyond Ireland and compromised liberal society in a serious way. I mean, in Northern Ireland today, the neighborhoods are segregated in a way that I think American whites and blacks from the South would find absolutely shocking in its literalness and in its physical infrastructure. I mean, literal walls between neighborhoods that are perfectly self-segregated by nationality and religion, quite unlike what we have here, and particularly what we have in the American South. It is difficult. I mean, of course, nationality is, national identity also rides with liberalism, right? And it's a kind of national self-determination was considered, you know, a fundamental part of modern liberal ideology. And it were, was liberal intellectuals who kind of championed nationalism, partly as an escape from what they saw as tyrannical religious institutions, not just tyrannical empires. National identity, in my own view, national identity is normal and fundamental to the Western way of life. It is an attempt to live together with your neighbors in peace with a shared law. Nationalist politics, I see as a, a kind of eruptive force that emerges volcanically from within that normally peaceful sentiment. That is, when it's disturbed, whether by war or political agitation or social change or the decline of a language, then this kind of nationalist movement roars to life in modern nations and usually tries to set about a goal. And that goal could be a very worthy thing like national independence or a home rule parliament, or it could be a very unworthy thing like enslavement of the Slavs and Lebensraum for the German Volk. So nationalism is this protean and dangerous force, and anyone who even thinks of themselves as sympathetic to it has to acknowledge that it's both powerfully creative and liberating and also has the potential for immense destruction. Dr. Nelson, I believe you got some questions ready for us. I sure do. And thanks for a great conversation so far. Let me start with one from Price St. Clair, and it's directed to Thomas. It really is similar to one that, that Evan has already asked, but it, it's a little bit more specific. So here it is. One of the strengths of Ibram Kendi's approach is that it provides a helpful heuristic for policymakers. We should pursue policies that reduce unjust gaps between racial groups, whether in housing, education, wealth, criminal justice system, etc. You spoke about the need to combat racism in the present while also attempting to move beyond racial categories. What specifically do you think should be done to combat racism in the present? Sure. Well, you know, that's that's one of the things that I really find I hate the word but problematic about Kendi's approach is that he defines all discrepancies between groups after a certain point to be necessarily the result of racism. He says that there's only two conclusions you can ever have. One is that one group is inherently superior to the other or that some, some type of racist policy is involved. I had the pleasure of asking him directly in late 2019 when I was a fellow at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard, and he was visiting speaking, I just asked him, take Black people out of the equation and just explain to me, what is the policy 
the racist policy at work that has the children of first and second generation Chinese immigrants so dominating white students for entrance into New York's magnet high schools, because these are racial groups that have a significant difference in performance. And as far as I can tell, there is no policy that favors the English as second language Chinese students. He didn't have an answer for that other than to say that immigrants don't really count. They're not big enough of a group to to be significant and they come with different motivations. It was a really unsatisfactory answer, but you could do lots of different groups. You could say, why do the descendants of French immigrants in America so underperform the descendants of Russian Jews? There's lots of different ways of breaking groups down. It doesn't really make sense to break down white and black when Nigerian immigrants outperform many whites. So there's something fundamentally unsatisfactory to me about saying a discrepancy necessarily implies a racism that must be counteracted. I think human life is more complex than that. But with that said, what, what, what kind of things do I think concretely can be done to combat, to be anti-racist in the present and not just to have an imaginative kind of conversation about what a better future would look like? I think that we do have to have some form of reparation. I've become more convinced of that since my book was sent to the printers. I think it's the single most compelling argument Ta-Nehisi Coates has made. There is a case for some type of monetary number being put on what it means to have been locked out of the housing market, for example. Not going back to slavery even, just going back to what happened during Jim Crow and afterwards with redlining. I think there's a very compelling case to be made that that would be a real way to combat aspects of racism that continue to define too many lives right now, as opposed to getting into these kind of theoretical debates about identity that I think oftentimes leave people frustrated and don't lead to concrete solutions. I jump in on that. There's a kind of model I've always wondered why we don't reach for it. And there's a model in the British Isles, right? I mean, in the before the Battle of the Boyne, 95% of the land of Ireland was in the hands of the ethnic Irish. That was almost completely obliterated within the next 40 years and remained that way with ethnic Irish exiled to Connacht and owning almost nothing anywhere else in Ireland until land reform movements in the late 19th century, which found a way to begin transferring the, the property of Ireland to Irish people. The agitation for those movements was, was violent in many cases and intimidating, but it created, it did a lot to create a native middle class and a peasant class that was able to demand more political reform later in the, in the 40 and 50 years after the land reform acts. And it's, it was precisely a kind of way of empowering the Irish toward full self-government in the United Kingdom. Of course, it led to Irish exit out of the United Kingdom, or at least partway exit. But I think it does provide some lessons for, for the United States when contemplating reparations. And, and then one other thing I would add, too, is that the dominant mode, I think, shaped by our, our partisan inheritance in America right now, the partisan inheritance of the late 20th century, is to link Black fate to other people of color, recent immigrants, and otherwise. And maybe an opportunity is coming to link Black fate to those growing white communities that are struggling in the exact same way that the Black community has struggled since the civil rights era, right? I mean, the, you know, much of the post-civil rights era activism is, is motivated by the scandal that the civil rights era did not 
lead to Blacks catching up. And a lot of, I think, Coates's pessimism about America is informed by that experience of his childhood in Baltimore and how scandalous that was in after the civil rights era. But now there's, there's a lot of places in America where the condition of white families is scandalous, where the condition of drug use and dysfunction among whites is scandalous. And there may be a way to link the fates of these communities together constructively in a program aimed at, that may be more class-based rather than race-based. Very good. The next question is to Thomas, and I like this, if both of you want to answer this, it's just, that's (laughs) fine. Thomas, you mentioned a differing view of race in France compared to the U.S., at least in regards to government. I'm curious if you personally feel like French society shares those views or perhaps feels differently in regards to racism. And this comes from Lydia McCarty. Yeah, I think that French people do feel differently. I don't think that France is a racial utopia necessarily, but French people tend to really, a lot of French minorities also really buy into this and tend to not want to speak in identitarian terms or what they call communitarian terms. They speak in terms of the Republican and and their rights as citizens of the Republic in a way that I think is different than than Americans often talk in kind of balkanized identity blocks and with like group interests. There's a kind of famous quote from the Count Clermont Tonnerre, everything to the Jew as an individual and not to the Jew as a nation, which is kind of a way that French people do think and is very different than the kind of hyphenated identity that, that has worked in America. So there are two multi-ethnic societies, multicultural societies with kind of very different visions of how to make a multi-ethnic society work. I think both have pros and cons to them, but French people are pretty, I think, amazed. I've been starting to promote my book, which is coming out today in France. And I've been doing a lot of interviews about identity politics and council culture and all of the, the usual kind of thing we're talking about right now. And I think French people are, are, are genuinely surprised and confused the way that we put superficial identity markers up front as, as, as the be-all, end-all in some of our political debates. It's really not the way that they, that they do things. But of course, there is a counter-argument to that, which says that a lot of minorities are simply shut out of the mainstream public discourse in a way that they're not in America. So there seems to be the bigger issue is Islam, isn't it? Just what, yesterday, wasn't, didn't the National Assembly pass a bill that you know, makes it more, I guess, more difficult to be Muslim and to identify as something different than, than French yeah. and, and secular? What I think would strike many Americans as unacceptable, Americans of all faiths, is the degree to which the French don't want any faith in the public square, in, in public institutions. In the 21st century, the, the faith that that falls the hardest on is, is Islam. That's just a fundamental difference of French culture that having to do with its history overcoming the Catholic Church. But there's no doubt about it. The French have a specific struggle going on right now, which is to figure out how to integrate, may not even be the right word, but how to have populations coexist that have very different ideas about the, the centrality of religious faith and religious identity. It's a question that's very difficult and exacerbated by the fact that France has been a theater of extraordinary terrorism, spectacular displays of violence, 
for the past six years with both foreign and homegrown assailants pledging allegiance to ISIS and things like this. It's a very fraught topic (laughs) and only in some ways tracks with race, actually. In other ways, it's a conversation that's very different than the racial conversation we're having, I think. Interesting. Well, let me direct this next question to Michael. You know, how would you say that fatherhood has affected your view of identity and belonging, being a son and then becoming a father? I think the experience of growing up with my father, you know, across an ocean, 3,000 miles away and absent from, from my life, you know, not even having the, the typical divorced American thing of weekends and double Christmases. That experience tended to reinforce what I, what I came to feel was the culture's dominant narrative that all of our identity is this chosen reality, that we have the power to kind of shape our lives. Because in effect, my father had you know, chosen to abandon a primordial obligation to his son, or at least that was my experience of it. And yet, what I found in becoming a father and also in reconciling with my own father as an adult was that the primordial reality of our relationship was inescapable and was constitutive of who I am and who he was. That in a, in a sense, he was as shaped by walking away from me, from his child, as he was would have been by sticking with the children he conceived in Ireland, my half-sisters and my half-brother. And so what I took away from it was this, that identity was a given historical reality, knowable in, your, in the story of your life, in the history of your life. And that choice could not overcome it, right? I could not deny when I was near this man that he was my father. Like I said, I, I, I knew the experience and recounting it in the book of of trying to triumph over him as a teenager and yet finding that my whole soul and body kind of longed for his missing affection, that he was defined by regret and remorse as he was by love. So that to me kind of regrounded identity in this idea of unchosen obligations and that we're defined by obligations we can't choose and how we live up to them, which is the part we do choose. I think we have time for one more question for each person. So let me direct the first one to Thomas. You criticize hip hop culture powerfully and losing my cool. Of course, that culture seems to some a powerful expression of the pain of black life in an oppressive country. How would you respond to that argument? It is a very powerful response to, you know, the blues is a very powerful response to the conditions of people deemed black in American society. It's a kind of equipment for living, as Albert Murray called it. It's a kind of philosophical disposition. And that goes through jazz and that goes through rock and roll and funk and R&B and it, it goes into hip hop. One thing I'm never doing is, is criticizing the music or, or the artistry. My critique of hip hop culture was centered around the feeling that hip hop functioned as a kind of secular religion in many of our lives and that it was a medium for conveying certain values and certain ideas about what was relevant for, for us and what was not relevant for us, what belonged to us and what belonged to the rest of society. And I think that some of these ideas and values were limiting 
And I think that it was actually my relationship, where I try to draw it in the book is that it was my relationship to my Black father from another generation who grew up in another America, whose kind of insistence that I shaped myself, that I shaped my mind through a relationship to books and to books that transcend my own particular identity and that transcend my own kind of geography and in my own even chronology. That, that was what actually allowed me to get outside of the self-limiting concept of what belonged to me that many of my friends got trapped in. That's a long way of saying that it's complicated. I mean, there's an extraordinary power that comes out of, I think, all forms of Black music. I think that one of the greatest contributions that America has given world culture is the, is the modernism of blues and jazz-inflected Black music that ends up in hip-hop. But I, I, I try to separate the art from some of the content. And the content isn't simply lyrics. It's, a, it's an entire approach to living. Thank you. Well, last question to Michael. You mentioned the problem of race in the church in the United States, the fact that we're so segregated in our churches and not so much in the Catholic church, but definitely in the Protestant yeah. evangelical church. There's been some interesting recent research on multiracial churches. And one of the strongest findings is that whenever you have multiracial churches, if there's a strong presence of white people, the church begins to look white. It doesn't look black or it doesn't look Latino. It just takes on the the majority approach. And so, you know, one of the solutions that some people have thought of, and I just want to get your, your, your reaction to this, is that well, maybe worship is a cultural thing, and you feel most free when you're worshiping you know, with people who are like you and express themselves that way. Do you have a response to that, or would you see that as helpful or hurtful to the church in, in America? You know, there's a couple of responses. You could, you could have a response that says, you know, evangelical churches in America have to seek to be fully American rather than grounded in a racial community. I mean, the Catholic Church also experiences some level of segregation, usually at the, at the parish level, reflecting just the geographical segregation around it. Sometimes it experiences that by, I mean, historically, Catholic churches were ethnically segregated more than racially segregated. I mean, in the South, you had New Orleans bishops penalizing segregationists among their flock. But in Northern New Jersey, you would have an Italian parish, an Irish parish, and a Polish parish, and quite serious rivalries between them, and quite ugly stereotyping among them. It would be nice if we were comfortable with each other. Some of this will be resolved by religious differences. I know in my own experience, being a, a more traditionally inclined Catholic, the middle-class white traditionalists get on astonishingly well with Latin American immigrants when it comes to giant processions through town as we both recognize that as like our shared tradition. So it could be that, you know, you would have to find ways of matching congregants, you know, through worship style or theology, right? I mean, I, I find Catholic traditionalists and evangelicals who are Pentecostal tend to be the most promiscuous about mixing socially and culturally. So you may have to just see if you can get more middle-class evangelical churches to do the same. But I'm not sure. I mean, the question is a little bit beyond my expertise. Ultimately, that's in God's hands to heal his church, right? Evan, I'm throwing it back to you to close down, but this has been a great conversation. 
Yeah, Michael, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege for everybody here at Furman. We got a pretty big crowd tonight, so really pleased about that. And I hope that the conversation we just had will lead to lots more conversations on campus about this sort of thing. For those in attendance, if you enjoyed this conversation, we hope to see you back in March for our second event in the series, which is going to feature Tim Carney and Christine Emba. So it should be a really interesting conversation. So be on the lookout for a flyer and keep an eye on your CLP calendars. Thomas, Michael, thanks again so much for joining us. Really enjoyed it. And it was very nice to meet both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AI's work on college campuses, visit AI.org or click on the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students.